if we have a database of 300,000 people, 1%, 3,000 of that group will probably get into a crash with injuries over the course of a year. If we're having an ongoing dialogue with them, if they've had a positive experience with our firm, then we're going to be top of mind when they need to make that choice. How much do you guys pay your intake specialist? Bilingual intake specialist. I had answers from $40,000 to $150,000. I'm thinking this is a $100,000 position because it's in that moment, that person is your firm. When they're signing up bad cases and they're working on bad cases, their labor ratio goes up. Wow. So this is way more complicated than just, hey, how many cases are we signing up? Correct. So you ask yourself, how many fee centers do I have? And is each fee center producing a million dollars or more? Ballpark number is around 8% of your team should know absolutely everything about your firm. No, everything. Everything. No information is off limits. How much everyone makes, who's going to hire, fire, discipline. There's no information that's off limits to 8% and that 8% believes and lives your culture. In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make lawyers great can be some of the worst for running a business. At every stage of growth, running a business and practicing law can feel overwhelming. And what happens when you try to add life and family to the mix? It can feel nearly impossible. You don't have to do this alone. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRing, a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week, we hear from the industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, from marketing to manifestation. Because success lies in the balance of life and law, we're here to help you tip the scales. Chad Dudley is joining us today for the second time. He is seriously one of my favorite guests. Chad and I discuss what you really need to be doing with intake to be successful. And it's more complex than you might think. So make sure you listen and take notes. How to accelerate the growth of your law firm at any stage. And the five reports you need to stay on track. I've gotten to work with probably over 200, 250 law firms all across the country over the years. And I, you know, I go in and I look at how can I grow the law firms? How can I get them to where they want to be? And I can tell you the one mistake, the biggest mistake that law firms make when they hire a coach, they hire a consultant, they bring someone in, recommendations are made. They say, we do that. And what I mean by that is that you'll come in, they basically say, look, I believe in what you do. I believe in your uh, skill set. I believe in your processes. I think you're good at what you do and I'm asking you to help me. But then when you tell me what I need to do to help myself, I dismiss it by saying, we do that all the time. Hey, you fix this in intake. Well, we already do that. Uh, talk to your clients. We do that. Uh, run evaluation committee. We do that. And the problem with that is that they're missing the details that really make the thing work. If they're doing it at 80% of what I'm saying, getting that extra 10%, getting that extra 15% of just getting fanatical about it really makes the biggest difference. That's where you see the biggest gains. And so when firms say we do that, it's almost like it kills progress. It kills improvement. It kills all the good stuff that they want. And I try and tell the, my coaching clients that, uh, don't ever say that. Don't say that. It sounds defensive in my opinion. <laughs> it is. And I think, look, I, I always say I've been to a ton of conferences. I've visited a ton of firms and I've been to, we, we all have, 
We've been to good firms. We've been to bad firms. We've been to good conferences. We've been to bad conferences. But I would challenge you to have a attitude of learning that whether you go to a good conference, bad conference, bad firm, good firm, you can always learn something from somebody. What are they doing well? What can I learn? And sometimes it's not directly from what they're saying, but sometimes just hearing them talk on a topic makes you think about something that you can apply to your firm. And so the firms I like being around, the firms that are growing at a rapid rate, don't dismiss things. They say, tell me more. And it's it, it's the details that matter. If there's a great process that somebody does, I would encourage you to break it down to the most granular level you possibly can. If someone says, you know, I was talking with the firm and they casually said, we do supervisor file reviews and not a big deal. Most people in the room like, okay, we do that. And I sat in on a few. I watched how the partner actually did them, how he ran them, what software did they use while they're doing it. Is he typing as he goes? Is he writing it on a notepad? What questions is he asking? Is he diving into the file while he's asking these questions? Who's in the room when it happens? How long do the meetings go? What reports do they look at before they go into the meeting? Like all the, all the details is where all that stuff happens. And if I said, supervisor file reviews, we do that. I would never dig in. And they were doing it better than we were doing. And I learned from them, but I would have missed out on that if I had this mentality of we do that. Two things. So first, whenever we're creating a process, my husband always says, I want you to pretend that you're going to put this process together and you're going to hand it off to someone you've never met and you can't communicate with them. I like that. So this is like, there's no way, like there's no Slack, no email, no text, no phone, nothing. You Mm -hmm. cannot communicate with them. And when you're done with that process and you hand it off, you are not nervous that they're, that they're not going to fuck it up. Like you're confident that your process is so good that it doesn't matter who you hire. You could hire a child. They can do it. Yes. That's, I like that standard. That's a great standard. I've never heard it phrased that way. And that's perfect. And then the other thing is when you said, we do that. And then you explained it. The first thing I thought of is every single time I ever bring up intake with a client. Every single, oh, we do that. We have a great intake. Oh no, we close 95% of the cases we want. How do you know that? Oh, you know, because we close the cases. Okay, how many leads did you get in? And how many of those did you want? Well, I, I don't know. Well, then how do you know you're closing them? Are you listening to calls? No. And then they kind of start to backtrack and sometimes they get defensive. I've had clients say, turn off call rail. I don't want you to listen because their intake is so bad and we're bringing it up. Yeah. They they take ignorance over clarity. I mean, they just want to be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to lift up the rug and see what's under there. And it is just, um, yes, I I hear you. And intake is one of the worst spots where people just like, we do that. And I cannot tell you how many times. um, So- when I go into a firm, one of the things that I, I do the most is, is I'll go in and be like, okay, let's find the best 5% of their cases in the building. Let's focus on intake and what we'll, we'll stress test intake. And we run them through down to the detail of every iteration of how a call can go. Is it tracked properly in their CRM? And you would not believe oh, no, how I many would. holes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. How many holes do you I find? Would. And you're like, you're totally blind on this data point. You're totally blind on this data point. If you're blind on this data point, you have no idea what your intake's doing and you're flying blind. And so intake's crazy. We can talk days and days for intake, but absolutely that's one place where I start. Then the next place I start is let's find the best 5% of your cases in the building. Which cases? Wait, wait, wait. So let's go back to intake for, for a little bit. What 
is good intake. Every time someone calls your law firm to seek representation, it is a opportunity. It is a privilege. It is, it is an amazing thing. And looking at it any less than that is a crime. Now, what is the best things that can happen? You got two batches of, of when, when someone calls you. There's the group that meets your criteria uh, that you want to represent. Okay, that's that's the first batch, and that's great. And you want to convert those into contract at a rate of that's 93% or higher, 95% or higher in that range. And then you got the next batch that goes, okay, these are not cases that we want to handle in-house, but these are cases that we can refer out for a fee or be co-counsel. Okay, that's great. And you want to execute amazingly on that. You want to build up your referral network so that their conversion rates are high and that they actually work with you and report back to you and build out that referral network. And that's a whole nother conversation. And then the third category is the group that, okay, we don't, it's not something that we want. It's not something that we would send to our referral network, but we still want to compassionately reject their case and help them in any way that we can. Okay, it's only a property damage claim. Hey, here's our PDF on how to handle a property damage claim on your own. Okay, it's a family law claim. Okay, here's a great family law attorney that we that we work with and that we get we do surveys with and we know that they treat clients right. Okay, it's a crim- whatever it is. What if it's there is no case? What if what, they don't if have no- a case? What What's the right way to handle a call where it's the fifth law firm they've called Mm -hmm. and they keep getting told no, but they keep calling? Why does that happen? Uh, I I think that it's still a privilege to be called by that group of people and we got to treat it compassionately, treat it kindly, treat it how you'd want your mom, your, your parents, your kids, your grandmother, grandparents to be treated if they were in a bind and they're trying to find an attorney just to guide them in the right direction. And, and can we do that? Can we execute on that on a consistent basis as an intake department? And if we do that, if we do a good job of converting the cases we want into contracts, if we do a good job of the cases we don't handle, but, but referring them out to people that we get a fee on good. And that the other group, if, can we do the most we can for them? So that if they ever do have a case, they go, you know what? I did call five firms, but this firm seemed to be the firm that cared the most and treated me the nicest and went out of their way to add value or help me out. So now that I do have a case, I want to go back to that firm. That's the goal for that that group. Or even just explaining to them why they don't have a case so that they don't keep calling law firms. So I think that's a huge missed area of opportunity for a reviews. Mm -hmm. So somebody could say, okay, this is the fifth firm I call. Finally, somebody got on the phone and explained to me why I don't have a case that builds referrals and a potential great review, you know? Absolutely. And just going, you know, look, uh, we've actually had cases that have come from clients that said, man, the person I spoke to was so nice. They were so kind. They took so much time with me to just talk to me and hear me out that when they did have a case, they came back and they said, the reason we came back was because of the interaction we had when you, when we didn't have a case or we didn't, we got turned down by you. And so the other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of good data in, 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 and so obviously the ones that we sign up, we have all their contact information and, and so forth. The ones that we refer out, we tend to get their contact information, but the ones that we don't sign up or refer out, are we still getting enough information from them to know, okay, zip code, email address, can we help them out? Can we kind of create a dialogue with them? Because as you build out a database, right, 1% of people in uh, the average population get into a crash with injuries each year. So if 
we have a database of 300,000 people, 1%, 3,000 of that group will probably get into a crash with injuries over the course of a year. If we're having an ongoing dialogue with them, if they've had a positive experience with our firm, then we're going to be top of mind when they do decide to make that choice or when they need to make that choice. Interesting. Now, how do you train someone to do intake? The first things that we go is going, okay, let's go through and make sure that the scale works correctly. And what I mean by that is that the data points have to be accurate. There can't be any gaps where they don't have visibility on um, how many leads they got, how many of those were qualified leads, how many of those got converted to contract, how many are what I would call no contacts, and how many I would call no decisions. No contacts are there's some type of interaction, but you, you did not get enough information to make a decision to accept, reject, or refer the case. A no decision is it's a situation where you got enough information to make the decision to accept, reject, refer the case, but you did not make that decision. That sounds insane to someone that coaches on intake. Do firms actually have a conversation with a client and get enough information to accept a direct reject, refer, but don't do it? Yes. And a lot of times they don't track it. And there's been many firms where that was a gap in their data. And once we got them visibility on it, they started going, oh, okay, let's just make some decisions. And their conversion rates went up, their signups went up. So start there. Let's make sure that we're measuring those things properly. Then the next thing with, fortunately, in this day and age with phone systems, you can actually just say, hey, look, send me live recordings on a regular basis with my intake team. Okay, cool. We're going to start that. The other thing is let's have scripts for not only how the call is supposed to go, but I would argue we're trying to get the minimal information possible to make a decision on the case. And there's a often a battle between possibly the attorney and legal assistant saying, hey, ask them everything. And then you got the intake department going, hey, we're just supposed to sign up cases, right? And so I would argue, yes, you want your intake team signing up cases and getting the minimal information possible to make a decision and get your marketing data. Okay. Now there's a a kind way to do that. There's a sensitive way to do that, but minimal information. And we script that. We also script, what do you do when you run into issues like conflict and how do you handle that and coach them in in those situations? The other thing that we want to coach them on is, do you have brag lines for the firm? Do they know like eight, nine, 10 things about the firm? Hey, they got the highest verdict against a drunk driver in the state of Louisiana or, Hey, um, you know, we have 50 attorneys and we got trial team. What are bragging points that they can use to run into common, maybe, um, issues with converting cases. And so are they armed with that? So script brag lines, and then we'll go, okay, let's, let's record some of the calls. Right. And then coach them. (laughs) Yeah. Record all of them. Right. But let's randomly grab a batch of them and go, all right, we said we're going to do these four things in a call. We got the greeting, take information, make a decision, convert. Walk them through that and how good are they doing those things and then coaching them on a weekly basis and have a mentality of we're doing this not to beat up on anybody. We're not doing this to embarrass anybody, but we're doing this because we want to be the best at what we do. We want to be the best at intake. If we get intake right, it solves a lot of other issues. If you get intake wrong, it creates a bunch of issues that you never knew you had. How much do you think firms are leaving on the table because of poor intake on average? Oh my gosh. I've seen firms leave anywhere between you know, 10 to, to, to 40% on the table during intake. So just, I mean, think about that. And if you say, say a firm, you know, signs up 50 cases a month in auto and they're leaving, say, say 15, another 15 cases on the table. So 15 cases times 12 months, it's 180 cases. Say 70% of those cases make it to the finish line. 
with a fee. Now we're talking about what are 130 136 cases that you're missing out on 136 cases times the average fee of even $10,000, right? You get into some really big numbers really, really quick. And, and so it's, and then here's what, here's the problem is that when you miss out on that revenue over a course of a year, that impacts what you can spend on advertising this following year, what you can spend on hiring key people, what you can spend on growing your firm. And it is a cumulative impact on your firm. So you got firm A and firm B. Firm A kicks ass at intake. Firm B sucks at intake. Okay, year one, firm A is putting more money back into its firm. And it just, it's exponential. And by five years, they're two totally different firms. Do you think that anyone can do intake? So when we're hiring intake, I'm a fan of personality profiles. I'm a fan of the disc profile. I'm a fan of the disc profiles that show you here's what you, how you are at work versus your natural or relaxed state. And what we're looking for is people that are natural and relaxed in a state where they're highly social, but, you know, also pay attention to detail and so forth and finding that, that rhythm, it's more important that they enjoy people, that they like people, and then we can teach the systems and processes to them. If we have an intake person, if we have a reception that is a low eye on the disc profile, it's not that they can't be great at intake. It's just that they're predisposed to not excel in this position. Now, they can overcome it, but we just got to proactively know that that's what we're working with. And so when you ask the question, can anyone be great at intake? No. I, I think it just takes a, I think it takes a special person and you got to find that person. And there's a bunch of those out there, but it takes a special personality. Yeah. Because it's, a, and they have to have empathy. So they have to be friendly. They have to have empathy, but they have to be able to sell a little bit. They have to it's like- abs- absolutely a sales position. Right? Yes. It is. And I think it's such an important position, but I think it gets overlooked so much. And oftentimes I see this where whoever's doing intake is also doing like a thousand other things. One of the first things, you know, you go into a firm and you go, who is obsessing over intake on a day-to-day basis? Who's the one that is thinking about, gosh, our conversion rate's down. What's causing that? Is it across all of our intake specialists or is it one? Is it, did something happen? How can we fix it? Is Let's look at the Metropolis reports to see who's spending the most time on the phone and average time on phone and how many calls. Like who wants to really obsess over the numbers? Hey, this is our conversion rate when they talk to an, an attorney. Who's going to think about it? If you don't have that person at your firm, you're screwed. Do you think that they need to be bonus or have a sort of commission structure? You have to make sure that you're complying with your local bar rules. Of okay, course. So but that assuming that you are. Assuming that you are. The thing that I like to, um, the next question is who gets to make the decision to accept, reject, refer the case, right? And you got to, in some states, it has to be an attorney. In other states, they trust the uh, non-attorney to make this decision. So there's that component of it. And you got to, with incentives at the intake level, you got to watch those, what I would call want ratios, because here's what's happened. Uh, So most want ratios for firms that do auto on a mass level is between 40 to 55%. So that's it. So whatever your firm's want ratio is, just know what it is. And there's a way... we can talk about how you calibrate that in a second. So let's put a pin in that. We can calibrate and find out what the optimal want ratio is for your firm. But wherever it is, you start there. And if it's your non-attorneys and they're making decisions on the case, you want to make sure that they're making the right decisions. Okay. Set that aside for a second. Now, once they make the right decision, you want to make sure that they're doing a good job of converting those into contracts. If you're going to do a bonus program, I would recommend doing it off of 
the conversion rates, not necessarily on the want ratios or pure signups or whatever going, hey, when we make a decision to want a case, uh, how good are we, are we at converting those into contract? There, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it on a rolling 90 with a 30-day lag, which sounds as super convoluted and it kind of is, but that's saying, hey, look, let's look at your 90 days worth of conversion rates, but let's give it a 30-day time to settle. The reason you do that is because you give them some time to chase the call. Now, the other way to do it, which is more effective, is saying if we're tracking our chase calls and what I call our no contacts, let me back up. There's there's three things that you're watching on an ongoing basis in intake. How many active chases are, do we have? Those are cases that you want that you don't have contracts on. How many active no contacts do we have? Those are cases that you don't have enough information to make a decision to accept, reject, or refer the case, but you're still trying to get that information. And then you have your no decisions. When your active chases, your active no contacts, and your no decisions all go down to zero, that data set is closed. Like it's not changing. So we do that by on a weekly basis and we'll look at, okay, here's, you know, six weeks ago. Okay. It's still live. We got one active chase from that week. Okay. The next week after that, no active chases, no active, no contacts, no, no, no decisions. That week is closed. What's our conversion rate? 93%. Okay. Bonus. Okay. So that's, if you're going to do it, that's my preference. When you do it off want ratios, it can get funky. When you do it off pure signups, it can get funky. Um, there's a way to do it. Can we do it at the individual intake specialist level? And can we do it at the intake department level? I like those a little bit better. But to answer your question, yes, I think there should be some type of incentive, some type of a bonus. There should be a scoreboard that everyone is cheering for and rooting for and trying to help improve. And that helps create that mentality, in my opinion. And you just got to do it right because you can do some weird stuff with incentives where people artificially reject cases so they don't show up as uh, chase calls. And I've seen a ton of stuff. Yeah. The unintended consequences of commission and reminder, it is a sales position. I think a lot of lawyers don't get that. Correct. And they, a lot of attorneys don't get that and they don't train it in that way. Like, gosh, there's a lot of stuff outside our industry in terms of sales and, and converting leads into contracts that exist outside of our industry that are great resources to improve the sales abilities of your intake team. I think I'd be great at intake. I mean, I'd probably be bored after like a week, yeah, well, but I think well, I'd be well, great here's, at here's it. the thing. It is a tough, tough job and, and firms treat it as an entry level position when right. it is a superstar position that really can massively impact your firm. So I once asked on Instagram, how much do you guys pay your intake specialist? Bilingual intake, yeah. intake specialist. I had answers from $40,000 to $150,000. Wow. Such a huge gap, in my opinion, also the the value that they're giving this position, mm -hmm. where I'm thinking this is a $100,000 position yeah. in my mind, just like after commissions and everything, because it's it in that moment, that person is your firm. Absolutely. I mean, you think about who the client's going to actually interact with at your office. Intake is one, deciding whether or not they're going to hire, fire, stick with your firm. And run the math, like the math we talked about earlier. If you can get 10 more contracts, 15 more contracts, and say that's a million more dollars uh, to the firm over the course of a year, invest in your intake team, get awesome people, get really badass people. And it, it's absolutely worth it. And a lot of firms just like, all right, they don't respect the position. They don't celebrate the position. And everyone's always trying to get out of intake and you want to make intake like, Hey, this is where, this is a great place to be because they're handling call. I mean, just call after call after call. It is a 
tough gig. It is. Now we put a pin on something. Did we cover that? So one of the things we talked about is how do you know if your want ratio is correct uh, for intake? It means that say that you're running your reports and you get a hundred auto leads and on average you tend 45% you want or 45% meet your criteria. Is that good, bad, in between? That's an important question. And so the way that we answer it is let's now look at your closed with fee ratio. And so many times when people are working on intake, they never look at their closed case stats. And that's a big mistake. And the reason it's a big mistake is going, hey, we made decisions to represent this people. What happened? Like, what was it a good decision? Was it a bad decision? And when I say, that's so you, you got to look at your closed case data. If your want ratio is 45%, but you only close 50% of your auto cases with a fee, that you're making bad decisions. You're signing up half of your cases are crap. Half of your cases, you're working on them and they're bringing in zero fees. And people never look at that. So you're like, okay, let's take that 50% that we close with no fee. Let's put them in a stack. And, and let's go through each and every one, and we're going to put them in one of three buckets. First bucket is we should have never signed this up, and we should have just done this at intake, and we would not have signed up this bad case. The second bucket is if we had just done this, this, or this at this stage of the case, we could have got out of this case way earlier. What's the earliest we could have gotten out of this case? Third bucket is shit happens. We couldn't have done anything <laughs> differently. It just it just went bad, and that's the cost of doing business. And you're calibrating your intake want ratio, you find a bunch that you should never signed up, your want ratio may go back down to 40%. Got it. So, wow. So this is way more complicated than just, hey, how many cases are we signing up? Correct. Because, the so, you know, I always talk about, the, look, there's two numbers that firms should be, should obsess over. It's your true cost per case and your, it's your average closed fee. Your true cost per case is saying, say you spend $100,000 to get 100 cases in the door. Okay, so your cost per case is $1,000. But if you close only 50% of those with a fee, your true cost per case is $2,000. That makes sense? And so you got to know that true cost per case. You got to understand your close of fee ratio. And you got to make that work with your average close fee. And if you're not looking at that stuff and you keep making bad decisions on intake, then what I'll see with firms is this is kind of, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, when they're signing up bad cases and they're working on bad cases, their labor ratio goes up. Like it goes through the roof. And what's the labor ratio? If you take your, your, um, everything you spend on labor, all in benefits, salaries, bonuses, commissions, everything you spend on labor at your firm, divide it by your revenue. That's your labor ratio, right? Typically for most firms, it's below 40%. Some firms can get it below 35%. There's, there's a handful that get below 35, 35%. So when firms have labor ratios that are high above 40%, is my, my team working on bad cases for long periods of time? And if you're close with fee ratios low, you fix that by either intake or getting out of them quicker and you'll see your people get to be more productive. I mean, it makes sense. Like if yeah. you gave your, someone at your um, place, a hundred tasks and 50 of them resulted in no revenue to your business. That sucks, right? Yeah. Yes. And so that's, but that's what we do unknowingly when we don't look at our close with fee ratio. But see, just me listening to you, I'm overwhelmed just like getting all this information. I feel like somebody listening to this right now might feel like, I don't even know where to start. Like how, how do I implement all this? So take a breather, just go intake. Just you got, okay. Intake, 
that is um, intake is something I would recommend. You got to get some professional eyes on it. You need someone to to sign off on your intake. You should probably do it once a year. You just get someone to audit your intake. Anyone you recommend? I'll do it. I, we do it. Um, uh, there's a bunch of awesome people. We do a great job. We'll, we'll break it apart and find holes in your intake. When you say we, who, who's we? We is uh, Accelerator. Accelerator is a consulting company that that um, I started to help firms with stuff like this. And we'll go into firms. We'll, we'll audit their intake. We'll audit other parts of the firm. We'll do uh, some ongoing consulting with them. We'll coach them. We'll do other projects with them. Sometimes it's a limited project, but uh, we've done that. You know, I, I've been doing consulting for about 15 years now, worked with a bunch of firms and I love doing it. We got a team that works with firms. They're awesome and they can do all these things. I have so many referrals for you. <laughs> <laughs> so intake is one of those things. The second thing that I'll often look at at a firm is what I'll do, a profit and loss analysis. I'll just look at their PL and I'll look at it for the past three years and I'll look at a couple key ratios. I'll break up the revenue into case type. Cool. Then I'll look at their expenses and break it up into into four categories, advertising, attorney labor, non-attorney labor, and everything that's not in one of those three other. Boom. Okay. So one of the things I'll look at is their labor ratio because firms can just get so whacked by their labor ratio, meaning like they'll go, gosh, we have so many people. They're working their butt off. They're going, but they're just not how are we not profitable, right? And so the first question is, is my team producing the amount of revenue that this team should produce? And how do you know what that is? Okay, so what I like to do is going, how many fee centers does a firm have? So a fee center can be an attorney or it can be a non-attorney that produces pre-litigation fees. Does that make sense? So some firms, their only fee centers are attorneys. They're the only people in the building that are expected to, to produce fees. The reason I don't say attorneys is because... A firm can have 10 attorneys, but maybe one's a managing partner that doesn't produce fees. One is a research attorney. One's an intake attorney. So really you have seven fee centers, not 10, even though you have 10 attorneys. And in other situations, you may have seven attorneys that are expected to produce fees, but then you also have two case managers that are expected to produce fees prelit. You have nine fee centers. So you ask yourself, how many fee centers do I have? And is each fee center producing a million dollars or more? And if they're not producing a million dollars or more, I would say, all right, that's that's possibly a revenue productivity issue. If they're producing a million dollars or more on average, then you're like, okay, they're producing what you would expect a fee center to produce. The issue is on the expense side. It's not a revenue side. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. So then that's the first place you check. So the, when you say it's an expense issue, if they're producing the fees you need to produce and your labor ratio is still high, above 40%, the next question you ask is, let's go look at our closed with fee percentages because possibly um, they're spending a chunk of time working on bad cases. So what percentage are we closing with no fee? The next thing you look at, what is our time on desk for closed no fee cases? It's okay to sign up bad cases. It's not okay to sign up bad cases and work on them for chunks of time. What's too long? Over three months. Got it. Okay. Now that's simpler. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I swear I, 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 we have listeners that are overwhelmed right now. I, I guarantee you. Uh, uh, Where did you learn this? I've probably worked with more firms than anyone out there. I have a spreadsheet. It has five tabs. If a firm fills out those five tabs, I can most cases give them what they need to work on for the next year. And it's just from doing, from repetition, you know, it, it, I've spent so much time on this. I love doing it. I enjoy doing it. And 
it just starts to kind of... You see patterns. See patterns. You absolutely see patterns and over and over and and you simplify it. Right? And, and believe it or not, it's easier when I'm working with firms, I give them a visual of what I'm talking about and saying, okay, labor ratio off. Let's go to this tab. Here's your close no fee percentage. Here's your time. This is hurting you. Let's, let's not work on bad cases for a year. Let's not work on bad cases for two years. It sounds simplistic, but firms do it all the time. Most firms don't know their close with fee ratio or their time on desk for close no fee cases. And so we got to kind of get some of this, these data points locked down. And so when I do an audit of a firm and they don't know their data points, that also tells you something. You're like, all right, they need to work on this. You need five reports. You need an intake summary report. You need a fee production report by case type, fee production report by attorney, closed case report by case type, closed case report by attorney. That's With those five reports, you can manage your firm through I mean, 80% of the stuff you're going to run into. So as overwhelming as this sounds, it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure once it's implemented, it just makes things run so smoothly and like a, a business should run, right? At what point in time should this stuff be implemented? Lots of stuff in firms break every time they double. So start off with 10 people, 10 people. You can, you know, everybody in the office, you really don't need systems and processes or you think you don't. You can kind of cover things because you're just so small and you can just kind of wing it, right? And you think, okay, life is great because, and then you go to 20 and then things break. And depending on how many partners a firm has, one of the most difficult transitions that will hit is between 40 and 80 employees because you can't know everything that's going on at the firm. You can't be in control of everything that's going on at the firm. Your quality of life just goes to crap. You're working 100 hour weeks. It gets really, really insane. And so that's a big pain point that a lot of firms don't get past. And I know we talked about this last time, but remind us how many direct reports should you have? I would say somewhere between five to eight. If you're really working with your direct reports and if you're engaging with them on a weekly basis and having one-on-ones or even every two weeks, once you get past eight, it can get it can get crazy. Now, it's an ongoing thing, but like I think, for example, we have about close to 60 attorneys now. And we had stuff that was awesome. It was great. Our evaluation committee, how we set values on our biggest cases. Boom. 15 attorneys. Awesome. Easy. Put them all in one room. As you get more, it gets a little bit crazy. 60 attorneys. I mean, that thing's broken 20 times. And we can't have one managing attorney over 60. And so we had to break them up into teams. And we broke them up in teams of four to six. And each team, they report to a team lead. And that's how we scale it. Ballpark number is around 8% of your team should know absolutely everything about your firm. Everything. Everything. No information is off limits. How much everyone makes who's going to hire, fire, discipline. There's no information that's off limits to 8% and that 8% uh, believes and lives your culture because you need ambassadors throughout the firm. You need, now what happens is when you're, when you're 10 people, you are that person, you are that person. You're boom, you cut, you got it covered. You double 90, another person. Look, start getting disciplined about this stuff when, when you don't need it. Right. And when you're 10 people, 20 people, like start, working through this stuff, 30 people, 40 people, you want to change the tires on the car when it's not moving. Cause when it starts <laughs> moving, it just gets insane and, and there's never any time we can't do this and we're too busy to, to be, you know, and that sucks. Cause when you get too busy to work on the things that matter, then you, you, you stall out. Absolutely. And you see the biggest issues when firms are scaling. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the hardest thing, the absolute most difficult thing that I see firms go through when they're scaling is that 
so say you're at 30 people and you have your 8%. So you're, you're talking about maybe you got three, four people that are on your, your leadership team, your executive team. When you want to take that, that firm from say 30 people to 60 people, the, the firm has now doubled and that team has to get twice as good and they got to get twice as, they got to grow with the firm. And the thing that is the most difficult thing I see firms go through is that they love and care about their key people and having those crucial conversations when those key people don't grow with the firm. And you don't have to ask them to get off the bus, but you ask them, it might be time for you to take another seat on the bus. And are you okay with that? And if they're not okay with it, then they need to get off the bus because I know we all want them to succeed. We want them, and we can see how they, they can, but the truth is they either don't have the bandwidth to do it or the desire to do it, or there's something that is not clicking and we keep trying to make it happen. And if we cause them stress, we cause ourselves stress and the blindness to that holds so many firms back. What other mistakes do you see firms make when they're scaling? I did this thing called a, a roles and responsibility document that it's a spreadsheet and on the spreadsheet, it's especially helpful if you have more than one partner, but the first column is, okay, who's the partner that is in, in charge of this process or metric, right? Then the next column is who's the person on my executive team that's going to own this process or metric. And then is there another person that, you know, the next layer down that owns this process or metric? What is the expectation of this thing? Meaning if this thing is going right, what are the indicators that it's going right? And then it's going, okay, as a partner, what kind of visibility do I want it on this? Do I want to be reported to this, reported on this daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually? And then the person that is the frontline person, how often do I want them looking at this, right? And then each quarter, I want to, there's a column for each quarter, you know, third quarter, 2022, the leader that owns it reports on it. This thing's on track, it needs attention or it's on fire and here's what we need to do. What this does is whenever something doesn't go the way you want it at your business or at your firm, it you go to that document and say, have I been clear about how I expect this to go? And if it's on there, then that's that's easier. If it's not on there, you're like, man, it's, I, I have not been clear. And you go through it and you make it clear and you put someone in charge of it and make sure that someone owns it. And what happens is as things scale, like when, when you're, when you're, 10 people, 20 people, the owners and everybody in the organization can wear a bunch of hats. You can be, I can run marketing, I can run legal ops, and I can actually, you know, fix a printer every now and then when I needed to and uh, go make copy. Whatever needed to be done at 10 to 20 people, you can kind of do it. But the issue was, as you grow, people have to wear less hats and give up some control. And that document helps you do that in an organized fashion so that things don't slip to the cracks. Or if somebody, a key person steps down or leaves, or if you take a job that you need to split into two, it allows you to do that in a way that processes and procedures don't split, slip to the cracks. Because how many times do firms go, gosh, we used to do that. We used to do this thing, but we, we just stopped. And we don't know who owned it. We don't know why it stopped and just fought, fell through the cracks. And so I would encourage that accountability at the process and KPI level and that you monitor that and check in on it quarterly. Is there like a percentage of profitability that firms should have within a certain range of revenue? And I've heard that the larger you get, the more profitable you are. Is that true? 
it depends. I, I would say as firms reach over a certain size, I mean, it's the, the margins may stagnate a little bit. There, there's a great book called Simple Numbers and Simple Profits. And one of the concepts that that book pushes is when you talk about profitability, are you taking the owner out of the mix and saying, if I had to replace the owner on the open market, what would that cost? And that's an important thing because I say a firm's generating less than $5 million in revenue. It has three attorneys. One of them is a partner and the partner is generating three of the 5 million. Okay. And on the books, it might look, Hey, the firm's super profitable, right? But the owner's working a hundred hours. They're doing all the heavy lifting. He's actually the only one that's profitable. The other two attorneys are not profitable. It's misleading to say the firm is profitable. And so what I say in that situation, I'm like, all right, firm partner, we're taking you and setting you to the side and you're on an Island and you had to replace yourself with someone that could produce $3 million in revenue. What would you have to pay that person on the open market? Boom. Okay. Let's add that sort of fake labor in there and let's look at it that way and say, now how profitable is your firm? My number that I like is just a general number is, you know, partner or partners living on an island replaced on the open market. Is their profit percentage higher than 25%? Okay, that's them not working in the business. That's totally removing them and accounting for the labor. Now, because sometimes I work with firms and the owner is living on an island and he is just like popping in every now and then. That's a different than someone that's working 100 hours in their firm. And so that's a way to to normalize the data and say, okay, how, how can we compare apples to apples and who's really profitable? And we'll look at it that way. Now, the thing is with smaller firms, you can have these crazy swings. If you get a, a big hit on a case and you get a you know $5 million case and your average in $3 million of fees a year, and also you just double your, your revenue, okay, your profit numbers can blow all those ratios out of whack. So while I say there's certain guidelines you should look for, what I do with firms is let's look at your your past three years. If they're a firm that's a mass tort firm that gets these big hits, or if they're a, sm a small firm that gets these big hits, I might go look back five years or seven years and see how often those hits come in. And we'll try and plan what they want to look like in the good season. Hey, when you get these big hits, what do you want your numbers to look like? And when you're in those in-between years, what do you want your numbers to look like? And we try and design it like that so that we can account for those big swings. Firms that are a little bit more stable, then we can predict it a little bit easier and we can create profit targets for them as well. Got it. If a firm is listening and they can implement three things, what would you recommend that they do? They're going to go back and they're going to do three things that you tell them to. What should they do? I'm going to say there's three things that they should work on in their firm. Okay. And then there's three things I would say do in general for your firm. Three things on your firm. Absolutely. Uh, first things intake, go there, make sure it's airtight, make sure there's no holes in it. Make sure that you're maximizing every time your phone rings, it's expensive to make the phone ring. Every time your phone rings that you're getting the most you possibly can out of it. Okay. And Chad is a lawyer, very successful business owner because nobody listens to me but please listen to chad <laughs> absolutely maximize intake make sure that you're taking advantage of every time the phone rings the second thing is find your top five percent of your cases and make sure that you're maximizing value on the top five percent part of that is doing a, an honest assessment of the skill set of your attorneys if you have some multi-million dollar cases or cases that have the potential of being multi-million dollar cases and you don't have an attorney that has handled multi-million dollar cases before or taking those cases to trial 
you need to be on it and go like, what's in the best interest of the client and make sure you take care of those cases. Third thing that I would recommend is get, get your core reports. I'm not talking about a thousand reports. I'm not talking about 50 reports. I'm talking about there's, there's five that I mentioned that you have to get it right. There's probably another five that will, you know, close the gap on some stuff that are variations of those reports. You got to get those reports right so that you can get visibility on what's going on at your firm. So those are the three things I recommend. Those are the basics. Get those right today. Now, if you just go, okay, let's talk at a little bit bigger level. What should firms do to be, to grow? I would say get coaching. Good consultant will accelerate your implementations. Things that would take firms five years, they can get you doing it in one year, six months. I've been a law firm consultant for, like I said, 15 years now. During my journey, I still will reach out and grab coaches from either in the industry, outside the industry, because I want to get challenged about how I think about things and how I do things, even though I've done this for so many firms over the years. The second thing I'd recommend is keep learning. Go to conferences, uh, read books, listen to podcasts like this. Uh, do those things because you just get so much good information. Now, I mentioned this today when I was speaking. You may get 100 great ideas from this podcast, another podcast, or all the things, conferences you go to, books you read. Be purposeful that out of those 100 good ideas, there might only be five ideas that are good for your firm at this time for what you're trying to accomplish. And be smart about, I'd rather you violently implement, execute five great ideas that are right for your firm than half-ass implementation of a hundred things, but you got to get out there and keep learning. And the third thing I'd say, go visit firms, go visit other firms. If you have a friend that's running a firm, if you have a friend that is doing good things, if you have someone that will say, come check, check me out. You learn so much by just hanging out with them, hanging out with their people, seeing how it actually happens in real life at another successful firm. Do people visit your firm? All the time. Really? Oh, yeah, all the time. We have an open door policy. We say, hey, look, give us a holler. Sometimes they'll sit in on one of our meetings. Sometimes they'll just come and visit. And we're, we're an open book. We would not be where we are, but for other people just sharing and, and being open books to us, we've always adopted that mentality. And we have people visit all the time. We have people always reaching out all the time. And they just shadow you guys. They shadow. They might come in and go, hey, look, that's cool. They went and they go do it. We have a, we have an agenda. They usually come in on a Sunday night. They sit on Monday huddles. They'll go to their meetings on Tuesday and then they fly out. We are of the mindset that by doing that, we, you know, there's a small batch of people that actually will implement the things that they come and see and we build friendships and relationships with them. And those are the people that we like to hang out, hang around. Now, have you ever audited a firm and thought, oh, there's nothing here for me to do. You guys are doing it all perfect and great. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It is so rare, but I had one a firm out of Southern California. They hired me to do, to audit their firm. So I, I did what I do. I audit their firm. Everything looked amazing. And so when everything looks amazing, the next question I'll ask is like, man, your numbers are awesome. As an owner, as a leader, let me ask you, are, are you ask? is this a quality of life thing? Like, are you calling me because you're working a hundred hours and you're trying to do this thing that you're doing, but with less input from you? He's like, no, I got a good quality of life. I like, I, I got a good team. I work this many hours and I, I'm, I'm working the exact amount of hours I want. And uh, I'm like, man, you know, that's awesome. And so as far as I'm like, are you trying to grow this? Are you trying to like what you're making? Are you trying to increase revenue? He's like, no, I mean, if I make this amount of revenue each year, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I said, like, why did you reach out? Like what, what was the, the pain point for reaching out? And he goes, look, I, I felt good. I just wanted someone to do a, a checkup, to do an audit and, and, he goes, um, 
this guy, this guy was, I guess, in his 50s, and he said, I do this executive wellness thing where I'll go in and they, they check everything, check your blood pressure, your It's urine. funny, that's what I was thinking yeah, about. I'm yeah. like, this is like, like your checkup at the doctor. It's exactly, he's like, I did this thing. They do the CT scan, they check all your, you know, all your vitals and um, everything under the sun. I mean, they look, and and if you get a clean bill of health, you're like, okay, I feel good. I'm going to keep keep going. He's like, I felt that's what I wanted this process to be. I felt like everything was good. I just wanted to make sure that there's nothing that I was missing. He had a small firm, small batch of cases, low volume, high value cases. He was running his intake and he was running his cases off a Google sheet. Really? But it was working. I, I mean, I audited everything. Want ratios, conversion rate, da, 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 da everything. I'm like, man, it's low volume. It's working for him. But was he running the reports that you say should be ran? He's creating these pivot tables and he was just, it was working. And like, would I recommend someone in that situation go convert to a case management system and pay this and that? I'm like, no, it's, like, not it's working. It's working at a crazy high. He had like a, you know, he had like a 45% average net profit year over year. Just a great practice. I'm like, all right, I said, I don't say this often, but I think life is good. Keep trucking. You're in the one top 1% of uh, personal injury firms in the country. Wow. If you're happy, keep rolling. That must have felt good. Like for yeah. them, they must have been like, cool. Yeah. But like, I'm not trying to just go create stuff to work on. Like I, I'm trying to find out like, what is this person trying to build? What do they want their firm to be? And how can I help them get there? So I know you talked about this last time, but now you're helping you're partnering up with firms, right? Can you tell Correct. us a little so bit? There, there's two things. One, uh, firms will reach out to us and either they want us to audit their intake, audit their firm as a whole. Both of those can be done remotely. The other thing is just with, with, with different projects, we'll work with them on, hey, I want to launch this initiative at my firm. Generally, we like to work with firms at least for a year, but sometimes we'll take special projects. And the, the audit, the intake audit and the um, law firm audit are things that take about 30 days. That's just a 30-day engagement. But the other things are usually then we'll work with firms for like a, a year at a time. In addition to that, one of the things that we've been doing is uh, management contracts with firms where we'll come in. The short version is they, they keep their brand, they keep their equity, uh, they can terminate the contract whenever they want, and we get paid on a percentage of the growth of net profit. Not If we don't grow the net profit, then we don't get paid. If we grow, then we participate in the upside. That's amazing. So Chad's cell phone number is, no, I'm just kidding. How can, how can <laughs> uh, people- Reach out to me at, at cdudley at dudleydebosier.com. That's D-U-D-L-E-Y-D-E-B-O-S-I-E-R.com. Thank you to Chad for joining us a second time and giving us even more of his insights. There was a lot of information today. If you only take away three things from today's conversation, focus on intake, it can almost always be improved, maximizing the value of your top cases, and to understand the health of your firm, run these five reports. Intake summary report, fee production report by case type fee, production report by attorney, closed case report by case type, and closed case report by attorney. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. 
Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy, president of LawRank. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity, and built a thriving, purpose-driven business in the process.